This is Before the Light Goes Out with Catherine Williams. Anne Cleves is a crime writer, a household name, a superstar who lives in the Northeast. She's most famous for her novels Vera, Shetland, and the Matthew Venn books. I asked her how many books she's written, and she said, just say more than 30. She's been published for over 30 years. Pan Mac are reprinting the early books with classic jackets. Welcome, Anne Cleves. Thanks very much. It's lovely to be here with you. Well, we're here together, which is really nice because I've been doing a lot of, of these things remotely. But we're here in the room above the Bound Bookshop in Whitley Bay. Yeah, my, my town and my bookshop. This is where I come to buy all my books. So how did you sleep last night? I'm not a very good sleeper. My husband died about four years ago. And since then, I've kind of got out of the habit of sleeping. So I can usually go off all right, but I must sleep very lightly because I surface several times throughout the night. And I'm usually awake for good. I don't know, certainly by five o'clock and sometimes before then. So I'm not a brilliant sleeper. If you do get back to sleep, do you sleep through or is it like sort of snatches of sleep? Yeah, it's more like snatches of sleep. Even when I was a teenager, I didn't sleep well. But that was stress, usually. It was because I was worried about something or because I dropped out of university and went to work in London for a bit and I was working as a childcare officer. And I really, I really, really serious insomnia there. But then I dropped out of that as well and went to be a cook in Fair Isle in Shetland. And then I slept like a log. So I think it's about where you're relaxed and where you're happy. And how hard you work in the day. Yeah, <laughs> maybe, yeah, because cooking is... Well, yeah, I wasn't like the proper cook. I was the assistant cook, so I was mostly cleaning bathrooms and peeling potatoes and cycling down the island to tell everyone that there was a rare bird and they should come and look at it. Oh, yeah, because your husband was a... Twitcher, do they call them twitchers? But yeah. he was a serious twitcher. He was a serious birder, yeah, in all sorts of senses, because it was his career as well. So I met him when he came, yeah, he came as a visiting bird watcher to Fair Isle, which is the most remote of the Shetland Islands, the most remote inhabited island in the UK. And he turned up there and got to know him then. But he went on to be quite serious, so he was conservation officer for the RSPB so he was quite serious about his conservation too but yeah in weekends and holidays he would be off chasing rare birds seen a lot of the country because of that and my kids my daughters still remember being woken up in the middle of the night and driven miles and having to sit very quietly in bird hides none of them has picked up the interest (laughs) it is an obsession and I think for a crime writer It's quite interesting. You were talking about them repackaging my early books and I'm just rereading them now. And that the first books are very golden age, very traditional crime. So they have an amateur sleuth as the central character. And he's a naturalist. He loves birds and he keeps falling over bodies on nature reserves and (laughs) on islands. And so that's been quite fun to go back and reread some of those. So it seems like living in Shetland, this character, you do draw from things that have happened for you in your 
Like, so is Vera drawn from anyone? Vera came, she just came out of the blue, really. We'd moved up to the northeast by then because we moved up to the northeast in the mid 80s. And I think the first Vera came out in 99, so I would have been writing it before then. And it was taken from here, really. It was, it, she grew out of the northeast landscape. I think she came from the formidable women that I knew when I was a kid because I was born in the mid-50s, so not that long after the war. And our town was full of these amazing spinsters who had either lost men in the war or I think who'd been given a bit of power, a bit of responsibility in the war that they wouldn't otherwise have had first time. And they decided they would rather be single than 1950s housewives, because if you're a teacher and you got married, you had to give up work. Mm. Even then, you know, in my memory, which seems so weird now doesn't it and I think she came out of those women who didn't care what they looked like who were really competent quite brave because you had to be if you were going to be a lone woman in the 50s in charge of men which some of them were I think digging back I think that's where she came from I was thinking about that because after the war women far outnumbered men and a lot of women knew that there wasn't enough men to go around and maybe there was more to life than just the search of that. Yeah. And it did shift the psyche, I think. I think so. And, um, and after the First World War, too, because if you, they, there were so many men lost in the trenches. And they called them the spare women, which is so derogatory, isn't it? In the 20s and 30s, there were these spare women who couldn't find men. Do you just think about how kind of freeing that would be as well? Yeah. yeah. So where are you sleeping tonight? I am sleeping in my house at Whitley Bay and I have a very comfortable bed and it's lovely and I always read before I go to sleep and in the past when I couldn't sleep I switch on the radio and listen to the World Service and Radio 4 and usually it's quite boring you know there are programs about cricket (laughs) stomped it's called (laughs) and there's nothing more likely to send you to sleep than a radio or World Service program about cricket but now it's all Ukraine and the war and so that doesn't help you sleep so I'm reading all night now instead of listening to the radio Mm. having it bumbling away in the background Tim used to call it the gumbler switch off the gumbler (laughs) he was west country just switch off the gumbler he'd say gumble 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 you've got that thing going all night (laughs) (laughs) yeah my husband's addicted like I'd never heard of Radio 4 until I met him it's part of the house now it's just in every room and and I absolutely love Radio 4 so I was far more excited when I heard that my first Shetland novel was going to be adapted as a radio drama than I was when I heard it was going to be on the telly I was so excited We've made it. <laughs> made it, finally made it. So where's the strangest place you've slept? Eee. Goodness, that's quite an odd one. I've been to some exciting places through Tim and the Birding. So we did stay in some quite weird places in Bolivia. That was quite an odd trip. Because the great thing about birding is that it takes you where other people don't go. So... We set off from, I'm trying to remember, one of, the, one of the Bolivian cities and just headed to where the rare birds were. And I think we didn't see another European for the whole time we were away. 
just lots of women with llamas on strings wearing roller hats and it was fascinating yeah so it was one of those quite odd strange hotel-y places in South America probably quite weird and then Tanzania we went there we went there later for our for our 40th wedding anniversary and that was quite smart because we stayed in lodges and things the first time I went was with my youngest daughter who was we, we were living in West Yorkshire then and her comprehensive school had twinned up with a school in Tanzania they went there and stayed in the school and then we raised money to bring some of the African kids back to stay with us but when she was there Ruth fell madly in love with a lad from Halifax who was doing his gap year teaching in the school and she was desperate to go back and see him and I said well I've never been to sub-Saharan Africa you can go but I'm coming with you so we went and it was like being 18 again it was fabulous we were on local buses and we stayed in just ramshackle places the one place turned up late one night on a local bus in this amazing seaside town and tried to find somewhere to stay and the only place we all slept in one room with holy mosquito nets that was quite good too at first i was thinking oh she's not gonna come up with anything and it's like <laughs> it's like a whole world yeah well i'd rather i don't i'm not really keep on stuff much so live in a very ordinary house and i've got a small car that's six years old I don't want to spend on stuff like that but I do love going out there and seeing the world a bit yeah we got a, an old camper van and we spent a month going from here all around Europe we did eight countries oh, with the kids camping somewhere different every night yeah. and then we did that in the UK the next year and we vowed we didn't want stuff we just want experience and and that's much nicer I like, think so I did tell my grandchildren that when they were 18, I'd take them wherever they wanted to go in the world, as long as I could come to, which was fine when there was only two of them. But now there are seven of them. And the youngest is only five. The oldest is 18, so we're going off quite soon. But the youngest is only five months. And the other grandkids, they're lovely. Grand, will you still be alive when all is 18? Because <laughs> we don't want her to miss out. <laughs> and they spend all their time sort of planning their trips, which are getting more and more expensive. <laughs> I love that. we go. So my next question was going to be, can you sleep anywhere? It depends, actually. Sometimes I can sleep fine in, in odd places. My favourite place to sleep is going to Shetland to go on the... So I sleep on the boat. So mm. always get the train from Newcastle to Aberdeen and then just walk round to the the ferry and get a cabin when I first went to Shetland couldn't afford a cabin so I used to sleep in sleeping bags on the floor of the bar but now I can afford a cabin and yeah just the movement I'm, I'm dreadfully seasick if I'm upright but if I'm lying down I do have a way of dealing with the seasickness which is a pint of white wife which is the Shetland beer and a couple of seasick pills and then I'm away until morning Wow, I thought you were going to say a pint of white wine. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, I'm sure that would do it as well, but you'd probably not feel so good the next morning when you got up to get your car. Do you prefer sleeping alone or with someone? 
Oh, I do miss Tim. I do miss that, having somebody... We weren't the sort of couple that never had a night apart. You know, he did his own thing, and there were places that he wanted to go in the world that I didn't particularly... You know, he'd been to Ethiopia, and he'd been to Kazakhstan, and he'd been all over the place. Uzbekistan, I think he went to. Those weren't places that I particularly wanted to go. Later in our marriage, as I got a bit more successful, I toured a bit too, so I was away. But I did love having him back. Yeah, having having a warm body in bed with me at night. And then, even better, having someone, because he was very sleepy in the mornings. He could sleep, man could he sleep. So he was quite biddable, because he was so sleepy in the morning. Just sort of give him a nudge. I'll oh, go make us a cup of tea, dear. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you really want me because I'm a tea poppy. <laughs> well, it helps. You're more direct. I'm like, oh, God, I've woken up with a bit dry. So what keeps you awake? I suppose it is... I don't worry. I don't lie in bed worrying about stuff. I do find it quite hard to switch off. So I'm there maybe planning boring stuff for the next day or, or stuff I'm not actually quite finished doing. And sometimes if I know that I can't sleep, I'll try and unravel bits of plot that I'm working on because that will send me to sleep sometimes. <laughs> Anything useful that I could be doing, think, oh, this is a really good time. I'll be good to get that bit sorted, how I'm going to play that scene out. Then I go to sleep. For plots, do you, do you like walk around and imagine and then things come to you if you're stuck? Or do you write it out? Both, really, yeah. Sometimes it comes if I just sit in there. I don't know, how did you do yours? Well, I mean, I didn't know how to write a book, so I spent six years secretly doing it and I didn't have the end until almost near the last edit I was sat chatting to someone and all of a sudden it flashed I went pretended to go to the loo and just wrote some notes down in my phone such a strange mix of like daydreaming but not like sort of passive daydreaming you're actively in another world walking around being someone else yeah I find it massively addictive when you've finished writing you sort of out like it's just flowed out of you yeah and sometimes you can be sitting writing and I'm in my kitchen in Whitley Bay and you look out the window and you're surprised to see the garden in the window because I should be seeing I don't know wherever I am a bit of Shetland in the fog or the Northumberland Hills or something because that's where I've been in my in my mind so quite intensely yeah walking's good Long train journeys I find really good for plotting because you can't do anything else really. You just sat there looking out the window and your brain just seems to unravel a bit. That's quite a good time to untangle. Yeah, backstage at gigs for me, I did a lot of writing then because it's just, it's almost like travel when you're on tour because you just have to wait. Yeah. And you can't leave. (laughs) No, that would make them a bit worried. (laughs) Do you write and work better in the day or the night? Early morning. Yeah, I said I'm an early riser, early waker anyway. I'm usually downstairs and working by six-ish. And I think partly that was because I had two small children when I started writing and, and I was working for much of it as well. So that was the only time I had really before they woke up. And even if you do an hour, that's still can be quite intensive hour. You can get quite a lot done in an hour if you're focused and you're concentrating. 
you can sit for quite a long time and not do very much. And I think having limited time is quite creative. It's quite good. It concentrates the mind. I get a bit, I don't know, I suppose I get a bit um, short-tempered with people who say they don't have time to write. If you really want to do it, you'll do it. Yeah. Finding those moments when I first started songwriting, it would be through the middle of the night because no one was around. And then you become a mum, you're up early, and it's like you change time zones, but it's the same feeling yeah. of that, like, quiet. Stolen moments Stolen. when it's quiet. Yeah, exactly yeah. that Because feeling. I don't know about you, but when I started, it seemed such an indulgence to be spending time doing this. I can remember when my kids first started, my first daughter first started playgroup, and I'd managed to persuade my baby to sleep at the same time as the three-year-old was at playgroup so I had that time and all the other mums there this was a long time ago so things were a bit different you know about they'd be able to wash the kitchen floor or they'd be able to do all this useful stuff See, I'm, not of that. <laughs> I'm gonna go back and I had this it was pre-computers I had this old typewriter I just sat there furiously for an hour battering away at this typewriter to get a bit of writing done and then feeling quite guilty because they were all doing useful things you know you were making a beautiful house in your mind <laughs> no, it certainly wasn't wasn't beautiful in real life well same I mean I just when the kids were little I just let the house rot I mean there was better things to be doing yeah. flying kites and things like that when you are in bed, so do you only read? Because my next question is quiet or noise, podcast or radio or uh, book. No, when I first get to bed, I read. So it is quiet at that point. It's only if I don't drop off to sleep that I'll put the gumbler on and listen to that for a bit. I can't go to sleep if I haven't read. So I do need to read every night before I go to sleep. And some days it's the only time I do get a chance to read. Especially if I'm reading a book with a very strong voice. I don't want that to... Sometimes that gets into your head when you're writing, I think. There are some writers that really have such a unique voice that you find yourself picking. Le Carre does that for me. He has such an individual way with dialogue. You sometimes catch yourself. I never thought of that. Picking it up. When I'm making an album, I'll listen to certain music. A lot of it is like jazz or instrumental stuff so that I'm not accidentally... Nicking a line or two. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We're up to the last question. Can you remember a lullaby song or book that sent you to sleep as a child? Something that you would... Sing for the children. Yeah, sing for the children. That's a lovely question, isn't it? I can't remember my parents ever singing to me. They read to me. Sometimes they read quite scary stuff. What, like? There was... Do you remember the Disney film about... um, It wasn't Snow White. Was it? Well, maybe it was Snow White. There was one with a really evil witch in it. And I remember having the picture book of that and just being absolutely terrified and having nightmares and waking up in the middle of the night about it. And my mum had a lovely voice, but she never did sing to me, I don't think. And we used to sing to the girls, but probably not lullabies. Again, my daughter really freaky out when my husband sang, my baby has gone down the plug hole. (laughs) 
My dad used to say that to me. <laughs> and she would be in the bath and would be, oh, am I going down the plug hole? <laughs> no, no, you're fine. And just a bit of memory, I could, in 2017, I got awarded the Diamond Dagger, which is like a lifetime achievement, but it's for, you know, hanging on in there over the long haul <laughs> for crime writers. And it was a really lovely gig because... Lots of the Vera team came, so Brenda was there and Kenny Doughty, who plays Aiden, and Elaine Collins, who was the who picked me up, who was like my fairy godmother who got me into telly, and her husband is Peter Capaldi. So it was like all these really famous actors were there, as long as all my mates and other writers and people from the publishers. And towards the end of the evening, I could remember Tim, my husband, my daughter Ruth, who'd been scared and who had had quite a lot to drink because I think she found the whole speeches thing quite boring. (laughs) And Brenda singing, my baby has gone down the plug hole. (laughs) And everybody very sort of smart in their dinner jackets and long frocks, but by that point, quite riotous, yes. So I I do remember that very clearly. So the vivid memory of the Ladybird books is the illustrations. I just always read, and, and actually always read mysteries, I think. So from a very young age, I learned to read, but my dad was a teacher, so I think I could read before I went to school. And always just read and read and read, and never owned lots of books at home, but had that ritual of going to the library on a Saturday. The whole family went, and picking, and just, you could get these books for nothing. And I was an Enid Blyton child. For a while, I loved those books. And it was that they were good for going to sleep too because they were quite similar. There was a formula. You knew what you were going to get. You knew that all would be well at the end. And I think during COVID, lots of people turned to crime fiction because of that. You would think it would be scary, but actually that that formula, that knowing how it was going to work and knowing that there would be justice at the end and the end of chaos and some form of resolution. I think people love that. And that's why they, that's why the sales, luckily for me, of crime fiction went up in COVID. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Anne, for being on my podcast. It's been a lovely chat, so thank you.